As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast and thank you for choosing to listen to us today. I'm Ali Maxwell and each week I pick the tactical and analytical brains of Michael Cox and Mark Kerry of The Athletic. Hi Mark, how are you? Good, thank you Ali. Always good to see you. How are you? Really well, thanks. In your role as a Liverpool fan, uh, you must be in quite some state at the moment. Passage through to the Champions League final. Uh, As we record, that was last night. We don't know who Liverpool will be playing just yet. But uh, as I saw someone called AK say on Twitter this morning, this month, the Reds could become the greatest English team of all time or 2022 Carabao Cup winners. (laughs) That is true. I I was thinking as well, I don't know who, which other teams will have played every possible game that they've entered in for. Historically, I need to look into that to see when that might have have been previously um it was never in doubt was it 2-0 down at half time one of the worst performances from from a Liverpool side for a number of years um I don't think they could have possibly played any worse in the second half so they could only improve really good substitution obviously to bring Luis Diaz on and I think yeah they could have, they could only improve and eventually got the 3-2 win so never in doubt never in doubt hello Michael Cox how's things hi good uh, Ali yeah just written an analysis of that game 362 days ago, you tweeted, Emery knows how to win the Europa League better than anyone, but if he plays Ruli in goal in the biggest game in VRIL's history, bloody hell. Yeah, Ruli's a funny goalkeeper. He was the backup last year, but got played in the Europa League, which seems strange to me. It seems even stranger that he's now the first choice, Um, but I don't think he covered himself with glory on any of those three goals last night. Last weekend, you went to watch Pep Guardiola's set-piece Monsters. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I mean that was a, a bit of a surprise um, they scored two goals against Leeds from set pieces and two from open play but really it was set pieces that won it and uh, I noticed that they'd now scored 18 set piece goals this season and only conceded one and uh, emailed someone at Opta saying how close is this to the best record that you've got uh, in the Premier League era or since Opta started recording set pieces which I think is 2006 and I was delighted to learn that it uh, makes them, well, they have the best set-piece goal difference on record so far. Obviously, could go down before the end of the campaign. But, uh, yeah, that was a good basis for my article. 
You'll never sing that. Um, <laughs> um, well, they also came up against the Leeds United side, whose fans, I think, are getting quite tired of seeing them conceding goals from set pieces. Uh, the Opta Analyst site has them, has them top of the table for set-piece goals conceded this season, also with 18. So that was perhaps predictable. Now, today we're going to talk about a manager involved in the Champions League semi-finals, uh, and that is Carlo Ancelotti, Real Madrid manager. We're not talking about him because... Of the Champions League, although he is one of only three managers to have won the Champions League three times. Uh, Michael, to introduce the topic, I'm going to ask you a very simple quiz question that everyone will know. What can Tomislav Ivic and Carlo Ancelotti say that no other human in the history of the planet can say? Well, they've won a league title as a manager in five different countries, I believe. I was scared you were going to ask me which countries uh, <laughs> Ivic is won. I mean, I would have been really struggling on that. But uh, yeah, they've both won the title in five countries. And Ancelotti, of course, has done it in what we consider the five major leagues. Uh, Italy, England, France, Germany, Spain, in that order. And that is really impressive. I mean, that is, I mean, completely unmatched in terms of, uh, you know, serious football leagues, if we're being honest. I don't think anyone else has won more than three of those five. So to win five, yeah, that's an incredible achievement. And we were not going to let that go without marking it with a tactics pod on Carlo Ancelotti. We're going to leaf through the book of Carletto, interrailing across European football and, and tracking those league titles one by one, dissecting his tactics, his management style and his success. Quick note before we get into it. We haven't seen the second semi-final yet between Manchester City and Real Madrid. By the time you listen to this, Real Madrid may have pulled off a magnificent uh, aggregate comeback and might find themselves playing Liverpool in the final in Paris, or it might be a, a glorious failure. We do not know, so that will not be referenced uh, forthwith. Uh, let's let's start, Michael, at AC Milan, where he won his first league title in 2003-2004. It was his seventh season in management. He had started with Reggiana, uh, moved on to Parma and then Juventus. Uh, the Juve fans, not a huge fan of Ancelotti, I think it's fair to say. Uh, they once unveiled a banner saying, a pig can't coach, uh, which referred to his agricultural background. Uh, also a bit of a quirk here. He was a, a Champions League winner before a league winner, and it was the Champions League really that defined his time at AC Milan. Yeah, it was, for better or worse, because they got to three finals and people probably remember the one that they lost far more than the ones that they won, of course, with that incredible collapse against Liverpool. And yet a slight confusing thing for me has always been that Milan were probably the best side in Europe over a course of five or six years, that five or six year period. They were very, very consistent and generally went very far in the Champions League. But they only won one league title. And I think that could be considered a bit of an underachievement. When they did win it, they, they won it in style in 2003-2004. I thought went slightly under the radar in terms of how good it was. There was a lot of stuff happening that year. Porto won the European Cup. Um, Arsenal won the Premier League undefeated. But Milan only lost twice all season. Um, and one of those came after they'd already secured the title. So this mm. was a really, really good team. So yeah, it was the Champions League that defined him rather than his league title success. What about the players that he had at his disposal? I think there's a lot of people listening who'll be able to roll 11 Milan players' names off their tongue from this period. But how did he fit them all together, get the best out of them? Well, that was the interesting thing because he had a big disagreement with Berlusconi, who obviously was not just the owner of Milan, but obviously someone who had a who wanted to have a big say in how his team should play. And what Ancelotti wanted to do was he wanted to play two playmakers behind one striker. He, he liked playing Shevchenko up front and he liked having Kaká and Rui Costa behind. And Berlusconi always wanted two strikers. Um, so he wanted Inzaghi and 
Shevchenko basically uh, with Rui Costa being the odd man out and having to drop out. A few complications there. One, because Inzaghi had a lot of injuries. So sometimes it's actually John Dal Thomason who flopped a bit in Newcastle but had a really good time at Milan who, who played instead of Inzaghi. But yeah, there was always this kind of standoff between what Ancelotti wanted and what the president wanted. So in the end, it was more regularly a diamond with Kaká as the number 10 behind two strikers and then a very ambitious midfield trio, I would say, or a diamond, but the three behind were Gattuso, Pirlo and Seidorf. Obviously, Gattuso, primarily a runner, a tackler, a battler. But there weren't really many players around like Pirlo at that time in European football. And to play him as the deepest midfielder was Seidorf to the left and then Kaká and then sometimes Rui Costa as well. That was I mean, playing almost four playmakers at a time when most sides in Europe were only playing one. So that was quite, quite special in a way. And clearly football looked quite different then and, and the tactical trends were very different to what we recognise now. But give us an idea of, of you know, how that team thrived. The, the, the fact of it being a diamond, uh, obviously you have Cafu at right back and, you know, he mixed and matched a little bit down the left side. Did they play with width or, you know, that I've got this image in my head of, of there being so many incredible technical and skillful midfield players that they just play through the middle the whole time. But realistically, that probably wasn't the case. I mean, they did. I think of them as really maintaining long spells of possession in the centre with, with those midfielders. Yeah, the width came from the fact that they had Kaffer at right back, who was getting on a bit at this stage, but, you know, played very well into his late 30s. The left was a bit of a funny one. It was often Pancaro who played left back, who was quite a kind of old school Italian fullback, did a job, wasn't particularly great on the overlap. But they did have Serginio, who they could bring on usually as a substitute, who offered something similar to Cafu down the left. I really like Serginio. I think he's a really good player. Um, so yeah, it was relatively narrow, I would say. And I think that was a, a feature of early Ancelotti teams because when he went to Chelsea, he tried playing a diamond as well. Okay, so he wins one Serie A title and we've got this sort of battle between the diamond, the Christmas tree formation... Um, is that seen as a as a good return or a poor return? One Serie A title in that time. Well, it was a funny time, of course, because you have you have Calciopoli as well, which Milan were a little bit caught up on um, a, a few years later. So that was two thousand six, two thousand seven, when the points deductions came in. I, I think there's generally a feeling they should have done slightly better. You know, like I say, they had a run to three Champions League finals. They had Kaká, who by two thousand seven won the Ballon d'Or, was the best player in the world. I think they probably should have won at least one extra. I don't think those intersides were particularly formidable as well. I, th I think there was a couple of seasons where Milan probably should have triumphed ahead of them. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the funny thing about Ancelotti. He's won one league title in five different countries. But there's various times where you could say maybe he should have won more. Mm. Well, his next club was, was Chelsea in the Premier League and he won the title in 2009-2010 at the first time of asking, a double in fact with the FA Cup as well. Uh, he had taken over after a season that started with Scolari and ended with Hiddink. I, I imagine, Michael, Chelsea at that time really going after the Champions League. There must have been quite a lot of excitement at having hired someone with such pedigree in that competition. Uh, how did it look in the Premier League? How did it go for Ancelotti at Chelsea? Well, it was a funny season. They started very, very well. I think first 10 games, they won nine, maybe, off the top of my head. Um, I think the interesting thing is that he started with a diamond. And it was almost like he wanted to play the system he'd used at, at Milan. And then they almost got a little bit found out midway through the... Or in, in, in the autumn. I think they won... Mm -hmm. 
had a, had a run of three games where they didn't win. And it was almost like teams had worked out that if you just force them wide, they don't have that much. Because uh, Ivanovic was the right back at the time. Wasn't a natural right back at that point. Was a centre back who'd been converted to right back. They, they played the start of the season with Bosingwa, who then got injured and couldn't contribute. So they had Ashley Cole down the left, of course, who was very good going forward. But if you just force the play out to Ivanovic, I didn't think Chelsea offered that much. And so they had this big rejig after about a third of the season where Ancelotti went to 4-3-3 instead, played an Elka on the right, where he was a little bit out of place, but he had the, the pace and the trickery to do it. Maluda on the left and, of course, Drogba up front. Um, and I think that suited a, a lot of the players more. It suited Lampard more, who I think struggled in a diamond because he wanted to be on the left of a three but highest up. I don't think he really worked either at the top of the diamond or on the left. Um, and that really got Chelsea over the line. I, I thought they were a little bit fortunate that season, to be honest, because I think in the two games against Manchester United, they were they were fortunate to get six points from those games. And when you look at the table, that proved crucial. But they were very, very good at breaking down the weaker sides, particularly towards the end of the campaign, where they were almost semi-regularly scoring six and seven and eight. It was quite spectacular. I think as well, aside from the, the tactical side of things, their, their core squad was largely made up of players who were sort of 28 plus, all kind of strong men you sort of might say you think of obviously Petr Cech, Frank Lampard, John Terry, Drogba was I think 31 at that stage, Nelka just turned 30, Michael Balak 32, Florin Maluda I thought was younger at that time I think he was 29 at that point Um, so they were all kind of primed if not maybe slightly over their prime um, in terms of their their age kind of ready to to have a, a real threat for the title and you think about who their competitors were that season, Liverpool had pushed for the title the season before and they lost Xabi Alonso to, to Real Madrid. United had pushed them all the way, which we can come on to that season, but they just sort of still adapting to a post-Cristiano Ronaldo era after obviously he went to Real Madrid as well. So they had a really kind of strong core experience squad. Um, Ancelotti had Ray Wilkins as well. I think Ray Wilkins helped with a lot of the the managers coming from uh, abroad to to bridge that gap in terms of whether it la- whether it be language or just simply getting a sort of a feel for the club. And it also helped that two of their main men that that season were having their best goal scoring season of their careers. So Didier Drogba scored twenty nine goals in in the Premier League that season, which was his highest in his in a league season across his whole career. And Frank Lampard scored 22 goals that season, which is also the highest of his career. Next highest for, for him in, in his career was 16. So it shows just how prolific he was. And maybe when you think about the whole Lampard making late runs into the box and being a goal-scoring midfielder, that season might have typified that more than any. Yeah, that was the funny thing about Drogba. He went off to the AFCON um, and came back and I thought there was a bit of an awkward compromise about how Chelsea were going to play because when Drogba was away and Enelka was up front and was linking the play with Maluda running forward, I think Joe Cole running forward, they were a lot more fluid actually with someone who was a real good link player like Enelka. And when Drogba came back, I thought their build-up play and their, their combination play in the final third was a little bit stilted. And the crucial thing or the crucial game of the season was away at Old Trafford where Manchester United won 2-1. And Ancelotti actually left out Drogba from the starting eleven, which, you know, was a big surprise. As Mark said, he went on to win the Golden Boot that season. He came on as a sub. He replaced an and he did score. But again, they played very well in that game for the first hour without Drogba. I think it was amongst the best football they played in that run-in. And Ancelotti, a few years later, said that it was because Drogba had been late for a team meeting. And therefore, he was punishing him by leaving him out of the side. But I wonder whether it had been, if it had been Petr Cech who was late for a 
team meeting, would you have made the same decision? I couldn't help thinking that that was quite a convenient excuse almost to play without a player who, you know, a little bit like what we're seeing now, you know, strikers strikers are not in fashion at the moment because, they, you know, they don't have the build-up play that makes the team better. So I almost think that was a prototype of what we're seeing with, I don't know, maybe Lukaku at the moment where Chelsea just look better with someone who can link play rather than someone who's a proper number nine. Of course, they start the next season defending their title with two 6-0 wins against West Brom and Wigan. Um, They only score from that point 57 goals in the next 36 games in the Premier League. So they really struggled to recapture that goal-scoring form, Michael. Uh, Was this a case or maybe our first sense of why perhaps Ancelotti was so good at winning or is so good at winning titles, but not so good at defending them? Yeah, I think that is possibly true. Um, it was a strange second season that. I mean, they brought in Torres midway through, which I don't think Ancelotti really wanted and he struggled to fit him into the side. Um, I mean, it it's interesting what Mark says about the, the age of the players because that was the same at Milan. I mean, that was a very old side and there was never really any almost evolution of the side, really. Um, and it was kind of the same at Chelsea. I feel like Ancelotti is very good at working with players who are already at the kind of required level and just helping them over the line and letting them kind of almost do what comes naturally to them. So I think of Chelsea and and Milan as relatively similar in terms of age profile and at the start in terms of the system that Ancelotti wanted to play in terms of the diamond. And I would say again, one out of two league titles, I think there was basically two teams going for the league those two years, Chelsea and Manchester United. Not really many others were in the picture. So it was probably about par, I think, without wanting to be too harsh. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. In part two, we continue to watch Ancelotti win a lot of titles in France and Germany and in Spain. That's next. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Michael, he, he pitches up in Paris and wins Ligue 1 in 2012-13. Now, Paris Saint-Germain might have won 8 of 10 from that point, but this was their first league title for 20 years. It was. Well, it was a funny one because he actually took over midway through the previous campaign when I think I'm right saying PSG were top of the league, replaced a guy called Antoine Comburare, who was doing a pretty decent job with a very newly assembled squad, really. Lots of players coming in at once. I thought was doing quite well. And it was them against uh, Montpellier, Olivier Giroud's Montpellier. Oh, yes. Going for the title. And really, Ancelotti's introduction, I mean, it's not like he ruined the side, but they certainly didn't improve. I mean, they they ended up losing the title to Montpellier, who, you know, a pretty plucky club with a couple of good players. But for a side with with all these stars in, that was a bit of a... A bit of a poor result, if we're being honest. But the next season, I mean, they run, they won it relatively comfortably. And again, you start to see some familiar things from what we've already talked about. You see 
some relatively old players who who know what to do with themselves. Most obviously Ibrahimovic, who plays up front and bangs in the goals. And also quite a narrow side. I mean, he started with a, a 4-3-2-1, pretty much the Christmas tree that he he favoured at uh, at Milan. Various players playing behind Ibrahimovic. You had Lovetsy, you had Jeremy Menez, you had Nene, who had a, a really good couple of seasons for PSG. Um, and again, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was an overwhelmingly cohesive side, but uh, they were the best side in the league and by a country mile. Ibrahimovic scored a lot of goals. Um, and yeah, it was... The the kind of Ancelotti template was now very much established. Yeah, you see the trend as well throughout all of these of having that focal point, that really pro- prolific striker, which I'm sure we'll come on to some of the others as well of that. But you're right as well with Ibrahimovic, just to kind of pad out what, what Michael's saying in terms of the, the numbers, 30 goals he, he scored that season, which was comfortably the highest of, of anyone in the French league. And second on the list actually was a young Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang at Saint-Étienne. Um, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, 30, 30 goals for Ibrahimovic. He was completely the focal point for that side, wasn't he? He had the second highest minutes played, so it shows just how important he was, of course. And again, it's a, it's a trend which I'll come on to as well for Bayern Munich. But the, the next highest goal scorer in the squad that, that year was Kevin Gamero with, with eight goals. And he only started seven league games that season. And then below him was Blaise Matuidi with five goals. So if you think that your, you know, your midfielder is your third highest scorer in the squad... Um, and not really a prolific one at that, then it shows just how much that Ibrahimovic was the the focal point of the the side, which of course makes sense. Ancelotti had a, a good relationship with Marco Verratti, Michael at PSG, and I think with with Ancelotti's Milan side, it, it is the central midfielders that you think about most strongly and, and with most nostalgia. In terms of modern day midfielders, Verratti and Ancelotti, that feels like a lovely blend, a, a place for Verratti in any Ancelotti side. The funny thing about Verratti was I remember the first time I saw him playing for PSG in the Champions League and I'm fairly sure he came on as a sub for David Beckham, which feels like a really (laughs) weird kind of... uh, They feel like completely different eras to me, Verratti and David Beckham. But yeah, I mean, again, if there's any any manager who's going to embrace a a midfielder like that, it was was Ancelotti. He worked with Pirlo at at, uh, Milan. I think he wanted to bring Pirlo to Chelsea, actually. Um, and so, yeah, Verratti kind of slots in and is immediately a very, very talented player. But he'd moved from Serie B, I think I'm right in saying. So it was, you know, throwing him into a, a title challenger at such a young age was a fairly bold call and maybe goes against what we've said in terms of Angelotti working with older players. But yeah, stylistically, he, he was perfect for that kind of team. Yeah, he'd come from from Pescara in Serie B, who, if my memory serves me correct, were really one of the sort of hipsters' choice teams of that what I would consider the early Twitter era uh, with with Verratti with Immobile with Insigne uh, and with Zeman in the dugout as well that's a, that's a kind of iconic side from from that period he goes to Bayern Munich 2016-17 wins the Bundesliga Michael what was the situation at Bayern upon his arrival what did he step into well he stepped into a side that had just been coached very well by Pep Guardiola for three years and I think the <laughs> The consensus is that some of the players found themselves a little bit underwhelmed by Ancelotti's lack of attention to detail, by how relaxed his training sessions were. There were various reports that the players were kind of staying behind and conducting their own training sessions to almost fill in the blanks, which is not a particularly... uh, Yeah, doesn't speak very highly of what Ancelotti was doing with them. I mean, to be honest, I, I just think of this as a pretty forgettable era for Bayern. I think of, I mean, the Guardiola era was very memorable. The Flick era was very memorable. Maybe Nagelsmann in a couple of years we'll be talking about them. Yeah, him as a very special manager. But 
this felt to me like probably the least interesting Bayern Munich season in, in the last decade or so. They were obviously a good side. They won the league. They had lots of star players. Lewandowski, Sean, a couple of the other attacking players were very good, but it, it certainly wasn't a vintage side. And the fact that he didn't last long, I think probably speaks more, you know, it's a bit more of a uh, an indicator of how he performed rather than the fact that they won the league, which if we're being honest is, I mean, it was one in 10 years in the middle of that 10 year sequence it's it's not particularly spectacular to win the league with Bayern Munich yeah I was going to say Bayern at that point well still to this day they haven't not won the the Bundesliga since 2011-12 season so yeah while it's while it was a good title win it, it wasn't like they were sort of dragging them from it wasn't like Ancelotti was dragging them from the depths of despair so there is that to it but they they largely set up with a sort of a, more of a 4-2-3-1 but would occasionally play a, a 4-3-3 or rotate between the two and it's probably one of the same thing really they'd have that midfield trio of um Thiago maybe slightly ahead more as a playmaker a bit more of a, a number 10 with uh, Vidal almost as the Catuso would you say Michael and Alonso more as the the PLO if we're going to compare it to the AC Milan sort of time um Philip Lahm would step in sometimes in the midfield to make way for a, a young Joshua Kimmich um, as well at right back as well but they played a very high line didn't they as well and still sort of had the the sweeper keeper in in Manuel Neuer as well so um yeah it, it was interesting as well to to read the the piece on Ancelotti on on the athletic website of Kit Holden saying how there were the times when Ancelotti maybe wasn't getting the best out of Thomas Muller as well I think we think of him as a really strong number 10 sort of centrally playing off maybe sometimes as a second striker but he would sometimes be pushed wide and, and not quite get the best out of him as well so maybe that kind of fed into the maybe the discontent in the the squad as well but then they went and won the league so no problem in the end. It is funny isn't it Michael this ends up being basically a net negative for Ancelotti despite winning the Bundesliga because it's probably the first time that this guy who is considered one of the great man managers, particularly of star players, is described as having lost a dressing room. That there, there, there becomes a suggestion that actually maybe the next crop of top-level players needs something more from a manager than his calm leadership, which is the name of his autobiography. Uh, this is a, a, It marks a bit of a, a sort of change in how people started to perceive Ancelotti, I think. Yeah, I agree. That was a big surprise. That was the one thing he was renowned for. He'd get the big players on side and he wouldn't. there wouldn't be any problems in the dressing room. But yeah, it does seem like the it was a bit of an anti-climax almost after being coached by, by Guardiola for three years and the players seemed quite underwhelmed. So yeah, that was a bit of a come down. And, and that was the point where I thought maybe his time as a really top manager is starting to you know, starting to be the end of that era. And of course, he went on to Napoli and then Everton. I mean, two massive clubs, particularly Napoli, but not sides really who were on that level, not Real Madrid, Milan, PSG, Bayern, Chelsea levels. And the problem, I think, at Napoli, I mean, we won't go into depth with this because he didn't win the league, but it was a kind of similar thing. He was taking it from Sarri, who was so much about attention to detail and really set passing patterns. I think the players just found themselves quite underwhelmed. So this is the period where I thought... Four leagues you've won, but there's no chance you're going to make it a fifth, Carlo. Well, between the, the PSG Ligue 1 title and the Bayern Bundesliga title, he had managed Real Madrid, uh, where he, in kind of classic Carlo fashion, had notched up another Champions League title, but hadn't won La Liga at, uh, in, in, in two attempts. Uh, then Napoli and Everton, which we're going to touch on in part three. Back to Real Madrid 2021-22 and wins La Liga having not won it in his first stint he now has all five Michael just to expand on, on what you were saying there 
I guess it's hard to imagine any of the other, let's say, top five to or ten clubs in Europe hiring Ancelotti off of Everton at that point in time. Indeed, a quote from Dermot Corrigan's piece about their title win says, Ancelotti was a patch to cover after Zidane. And you wrote, this time last year, it seemed as if Carlo Ancelotti's time as an elite football manager was over. But here he is completing the set. Yeah, remarkable, really. I mean, uh, again, a funny kind of situation where so many leagues these days aren't actually that competitive. You know, in the 80s and 90s, if you won the league as a manager, you'd done a brilliant job. Whereas it feels like Ancelotti has gone to PSG, he's gone to Bayern, and he's gone to Real Madrid, and he hasn't performed brilliantly. He's just kept the group together. He's kept things ticking over. I think Real Madrid suits him because, you know, much like his Milan side, for example, there's very creative midfielders there who can kind of control games by themselves. It's a relatively old side. There's not that many young players that Ancelotti needs to kind of really develop. And of course, there's not that much competition in La Liga at the moment. Barcelona have been in a mini crisis. Atleti didn't challenge at all in the league this year. So, I mean, the fact that they won the league four games from the end, despite the fact that we're not really speaking about them as a great side, I think shows the fact that this was built for Ancelotti. Um, yeah, again, it might sound harsh to call him a bit of a patch, but he is the man you want in this kind of situation. And how does this Real Madrid team play under, under Ancelotti? Formation, style, key men? Well, I think there's a combination of, of two classic Ancelotti things. One is a kind of experienced midfielder who can control the game. And the other is a couple of key individuals who, to a certain extent, are given freedom to do what they want. And Benzema and Vinicius have been probably the best two players in La Liga this year, I would say. they Just individually, they're great. They combine very well. And we do have to give Ancelotti credit for... I think for, you know Vinicius has had a really, really good season, probably beyond what we've seen from him before. Defensively, I think they're broadly good. I think against good opposition, they've sometimes been exposed. They lost 4-0 to Barcelona, which is quite a remarkable situation to lose 4-0 to a side who weren't really challenging you in the league. And I think at times we've seen them a little bit exposed in the Champions League that Benzema's brilliance is just covered for. So yeah, they're, they're a decent side. But again, I wouldn't put this down as a vintage Real Madrid team. I think it's really interesting what you say about the, the defence as well, Michael. I looked into the numbers on this. So typically the team with the, the best attack and the best defence wins the league. Often they'll, their statistics will suggest that they are strongest at, at both ends. And as you mentioned, Madrid's attack and their creative players are the best around. And Benzema and Vinicius Jr. really have been the, the best in the Liga. But as you say, the defence wasn't the best. And it's, it's shown more so in their underlying numbers than their actual goals conceded. So they were expected to concede 39 goals based on the quality of chances that they gave up. And they actually conceded 28. Now, that difference between expectation and reality is the, the biggest of any side in La Liga. So, of course, if you win the title, it's not based on luck. Of course, it's a, it's a long old season. But just that difference um, between the two seems to be something which is just worthy of note, especially from that defensive perspective. Exceptional performances in front of goal from Benz and in goal from Courtois, I think, has certainly helped here. Uh, and Michael, sometimes when you track a managerial career over twenty years, there's a lot of times where you can you can point to moments of of um, evolution, of experiments that come off and then become the norm for a manager. Uh, in your piece about this title and Ancelotti's career, there's a line where it suggests that this season at Real, when he has experimented, things have gone awry. And when he's kept it simple, Real have shone. It's, you know, it is actually, this stuff is quite critical almost of Ancelotti, certainly just in the tactical sense. Um, but you can't argue that it's not been 
pretty consistent throughout his career. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is spot on. I mean, the interesting thing with Ancelotti is that the evolution or the change in his management really happened before any of these titles. The change happened at Juventus. He started out as the assistant manager to Rigo Sacchi, who, of course, is all about the system, doesn't like individuals, doesn't like Roberto Baggio because he's got flair and wants to play as number 10. He doesn't want that. He plays 4-4-2, you know, gets rid of Zola. And suddenly he goes to Juventus, works with Zidane and thinks, hang on, Zidane's so good. We've got to build the side around him. And the rest of his career is basically just building his sides around star individuals. And I think his fondness for a diamond or sometimes Christmas tree comes from the fact that often you've got various number 10s or various playmakers. You've got to fit into the same team. Um, and he's remained fairly consistent from that stance ever since. But yeah, you're right. He's he's tried to change formation a couple of times this season. He played diamond early on away at, was it Levante? They lost that. He tried a couple of things against Barcelona with a kind of box midfield. And then he tried a three-man defence in the second half and they lost 4-0. Every time he's tried to go away and try something a little bit clever, it has backfired. And I think that's interesting because, you know, ironically, the circle was completed with Zidane being... Ancelotti's apprentice and managing in a very similar way to him in the first few seasons of Zidane you would say he was very Ancelotti he kept things simple he didn't try and do clever tactical things last season I actually think Zidane did I think he was actually suddenly became quite clever tactically but Ancelotti remains the same old Ancelotti we've known for the last what 20 years now Okay, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. And in the final part, Michael's going to build a Carlo Ancelotti composite 11 from all these great teams that he's managed. And we're also going to look a little further at some of the criticisms of his management style and tactics. Um, no doubt while he fires up another cigar and raises his eyebrow. That's next. <laughs> this episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So we kind of mix everything that we've said uh, about Carlo Ancelotti together. And unlike most managers, it's quite a large sample size spanning two decades. And one of the things that gets spat out and levelled at him, Michael, is that he only suits the top clubs. Now, for a lot of managers who have that levelled at them, there's really no evidence for or against because they don't manage not the lesser clubs when they reach the very top. You know, people always say, what would Pep Guardiola do with a League Two team? Irrelevant. With Ancelotti, those spells are Everton and Napoli. Perhaps we could look a little bit deeper into those and try and appraise those spells to work out whether that criticism of him only suiting the very top clubs with the top players uh, is fair. Yeah, particularly Everton. I mean, Napoli probably should have been challenging for the title more than they did under him. Everton, yeah, they were mid-table side, pretty bad side when he took over, actually, from uh, Marco Silva. He had 
he had periods where he seemed to like individuals and he had periods where he basically went back to playing 4-4-2 and went back to what he did the previous time he was in charge of a mid-table club or a lesser club um, and just played Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison up front and kept it solid behind. So, yeah, I mean, that Everton spell is very weird in hindsight. It just feels, with all due respect to Everton, big club, but I mean, one that are currently battling to stay up. It just feels so strange to see them amongst, you know, some of the biggest names in European football, where Ancelotti sometimes was taking charge of a side where he was almost expected to win the league title. I think it's interesting as well about Dominic Calvert-Lewin is that, again, maybe a bit like the club, there's going to be a drop-off in the, the player quality. I mean, he's had Benzema, Lewandowski, he's had Shevchenko, he's had Ibrahimovic, he's had all all these players who are world-class strikers who are going to get upwards of maybe 30 goals a season or there or thereabouts. Didier Drogba, you'd add to that as well. And Dominic Calvert-Lewin is a, a very good player and he, was, he scored a lot of goals. He's quite prolific under Ancelotti, but it is still a a drop-off in quality. So it's never going to get to quite the same height. So just like, obviously, you get maybe a drop-off in the, the the team quality, the player quality isn't quite as high. Even though he had, the, you know, James Rodriguez, who he'd worked with previously, um, the quality of player just obviously wasn't the same at Everton. So he wasn't able to, to get the sort of the star quality. He's never done more than two seasons at a club since 2009, since taking charge of Chelsea. And he's had a lot of clubs since then. So I guess the obvious question is, does he have a shelf life? Yeah, I think he does, actually. And I think when you watch his sides week in, week out, you become a little bit more sceptical about his managerial ability compared to just looking at it season by season and seeing that he's won lots of league titles. I think people do become a little bit frustrated with him. I think it's worth pointing out that on a couple of occasions, he has resigned to take another job. Uh, certainly was the case with leaving Everton for Real Madrid. I'm fairly sure the first time around as well, when he went from uh, PSG to Real Madrid. Um, so sometimes it's been by his own making that he's moved on. But yeah, he hasn't really created a dynasty. I don't even know if at Milan you can call it a dynasty because it was, you know, it was just the same team from beginning to an end, uh, from beginning to the end. And the next managers that came in were the ones who needed to kind of move things forward. You know, I don't think there's been that much legacy of what he did at Milan. Um, so yeah, he is, a, he is a funny manager, but he, he certainly gets results and he gets on with players. I mean, we shouldn't underestimate that. There's so many managers that are very good tactically, but find that the players just don't buy into their methods. You know, we've seen that at Manchester United at the moment, just players who, who don't seem to get on with the manager at all. Ancelotti, aside from that time at Bayern, has rarely had that. And I think that is a really important quality and probably speaks to the fact that he was a great player himself um, and probably knows how to cope with big players. That's true, actually. When you think about the respect that the players give him, you know, he's obviously got that experience from from his playing days. But I think sort of on the shelf life question, I do think it's largely indicative of the clubs that he has managed as well, which sort of feed into that. So obviously Chelsea, you know, brutal under um, Abramovich in terms of changing managers all the time. Real Madrid are even more so, you might say, in, in recent years especially. And to, to a certain extent by Munich, I, I looked into how many managers they've had since 2011. They've had seven managers since 2011. So they're not exactly known for their loyalty, you might say. But a lot of these these top, top clubs like that um, maybe get their, their money's worth, um, make sure they get the title wrapped up and then move the managers on. There is a place for what he's done though, right? At the very biggest clubs, you know, working with players who are at their peak, uh, established star men and doing what's needed with them for a season generally uh, at most. Of course, the criticisms follow after that, but there is a place for that at these massive clubs, isn't there, Michael? And 
it, it seems like he doesn't leave behind a, a ton of wreckage. No, I agree with that. I think that is a very good point. He, um, yeah, it's not like a Mourinho thing where the dressing rooms and tatters. That is a good point. This is a new, a slightly new situation in football, I think, where you've got sides who are just dominant in their league. They're almost certainly going to win the league. And maybe they just want managers who are going to come in and just keep things steady. I think that's particularly mm. true at Real Madrid, where you look historically last 20, 30 years, probably going back longer. The manager's never been the star at Real Madrid. It's just not that kind of club. At Barcelona, sometimes the manager's the star. Guardiola was the star. Johan Cruyff was the star. But at Real Madrid, it's almost like the president is the main man. The president's in charge of signing players. Sometimes the president seems to be in charge of saying what players he wants to be on the pitch. The manager's kind of just a kind of middleman in a bizarre way. And Ancelotti, I think, is is perfect for that role. I don't think he's necessarily the manager who kind of manager as well who really um, fires up the fans, if that makes sense. I mean, I remember when Liverpool got rid of Brendan Rodgers and they were looking for a manager and the, the, the two favourites were either Klopp and Ancelotti. And I know this is very easy to say now, but I really thought at the time, I just can't imagine Ante- Ancelotti going in and Liverpool, pan- Liverpool fans saying he just gets it. You know, he just gets the club. <laughs> He's almost like a kind of slightly standoffish businessman. I would say, whereas Klopp, obviously what he did at Dortmund was so obviously transferable to Liverpool. And of course, he's become, I think, an even better, by far a better manager than he was at Dortmund at Liverpool. But one of the first things he did was he got the fans on board. And I think that has sustained a lot of what what has followed in the last, what is it now, coming up to seven years. I just can't really see Angelotti has ever had that same connection with fans. Mm. Well, he does have a record that will be very difficult to match. Five league titles in each of Europe's big five leagues. One last tough question for you, Michael. It's five league titles total for Ancelotti in 16 full seasons. This is not including half seasons or seasons where he left early. 16 full seasons of managing Juventus, Milan, Chelsea, PSG, Real Madrid and Bayern. Five league titles in 16 full seasons. Less than one in three. Is that a a good ratio, acceptable or a little low? Maybe it's being half, but I reckon he should have had about seven by now. I think he should have won one more at Milan and I think one more either in his second season at Chelsea or maybe that first half season at PSG. So yeah, there's an argument that he's never won more than he should have in terms of league titles. Um, So I mean, it's such a funny thing to to say because he's done something Mm. really remarkable that no one else has and yet when you look through them one by one you look at the five and you think well yeah expected you to win that expected you to win that it is a very funny career he's had well it's also the whole point of this podcast is to uh ask the difficult questions uh no it's um it's it is interesting as you say and i think it's worth doing um however the great tactical historians will remember him uh, this is a man who's had the sort of career generally only seen on, on Football Manager, on computer games. Certainly someone you would want to have a long, long dinner with uh, to talk about his career and has managed a huge proportion of the best players on the planet over the last 20 years. So we, we didn't want to let this episode go by without putting together an Ancelotti all-time 11. Uh, it's pretty tough to do, um, but you've both had a go at it. Michael, why don't you start... Uh, I guess we're playing a 4-3-3 of sorts. Why don't you start with... The Ancelotti all-time eleven goalkeeper and back four. 
Yeah, funny one with the goalkeeper. We're talking Dida, Petacek, Salvatore Sirigu, Manuel Neuer and Thibaut Courtois. I don't think Czech at that point was the Czech we'd seen in previous years. I think Dida was a good goalkeeper. I think it's probably between Neuer and Courtois. Um, and I think Courtois actually had a really good season this time around. So mm. I am going to go for Thibaut Courtois as my Ancelotti goalkeeper. Uh, what about you, Mark? I, I've probably gone a little bit more for his historical sort of importance in the Premier League. I have gone for Petr Cech in goal. Um, but I do uh, take take what Michael said in terms of that season while Ancelotti was there. Maybe a slightly different story, but um, I've been skewed by my perception of history. OK, let's look at Ancelotti fullbacks. Some of them had more work to do going forward than others, of course, at times. Uh, the right backs, Cafu, Branislav Ivanovic, uh, Jale, Lam, and Carvajal. And the left backs, Pancaro, Cole, Maxwell, Alaba and Mendy. Michael. Well, right back, I mean, I think this has often been his weakest position. It can't be Ivanovic for that season. Jale, ugh, definitely not. Uh, <laughs> and Danny Carvajal's really struggling this season. So it's between Lam and Cafu. I just about go for Cafu. Uh, I mean, they're both brilliant. They're both all-time great right-backs. But I think in terms of just what you want from an Ancelotti system, which is width and overlapping, I think you have to go for Cafu. On the other side, I would go for David Alaba. Um, I think Ashley Cole's probably the main contender. But again, I don't think Ashley Cole was quite as best in that league winning campaign. So Alaba for me. I definitely agree with everything you said there, Michael. I have gone for Cafu at right back. Um, again, maybe it's my perception, my Premier League skew, but I have gone for Ashley Cole um, at left back. I was thinking of being a bit too smart and putting Maldini at left back, but I've, I will come on to my centre-backs from there. Well, it's a hell of a list of centre-backs, I tell you that, starting with Nesta and Maldini and then heading to Carvalho and Terry. Uh, Thiago Silva and Mamadou Sacco, uh, Martinez and Hummels at Bayern, and this season Militao and David Alaba. Could have a situation where we have Alaba in Michael's team twice, but I suspect probably not. Yeah, if you're being really clever, you could have uh, Alex twice, the Brazilian centre-back who played at both Chelsea mm-hmm. and PSG, but I don't think many people would choose that. Um I'm actually going to stick with Milan, Nesta and Maldini, just a great partnership. Uh, John Terry comes into the equation, I think, or comes into the conversation. Thiago Silva, obviously an all-time great, but he was injured quite a lot that season that they won the league title under Ancelotti. So, yeah, I've got three Milan defenders, Cafu, Nesta and Maldini. Yeah, Nesta and Maldini. You can't really look beyond them. I mean, I was equally going to maybe think of adding John Terry to the to the list, but Nesta and Maldini, and they sort of come as a partnership as well. So you can't have Nesta without Maldini and, and vice versa. So, yeah, got to agree. I'm quite pleased that I don't have to pick three of this batch of central midfield players. At Pirlo, Gattuso and Seydorf at AC Milan, Mikel, Balak and Lampard at Chelsea, Motta, Verratti, Matuidi. At Bayern, Xabi Alonso, Arturo Vidal and Thiago and at Real Madrid, Casemiro, Modric and Kroos. Uh, he was a midfield player himself, wasn't he, Michael? And I always think, as I said earlier, of central midfield players when I think of Ancelotti. This is a hell of a gang. Yeah, this is quite tough to choose between. Um, I mean, this is just the size that won the, he's won the title with. I mean, you could go back and, and get Juventus and... Palmer and you've got I mean across the pitch you've got lots of Cannavaro and Chiram and Buffon and Zidane and Zaghi I mean it's absolutely you must have the best composite 11 ever I'm going to go for Andrea Pirlo in the holding role I think uh, he's just completely era defining player 
and I think was a better player than Jabi Alonso in that role. And as my two more advanced midfielders, I'm going to go for the current two of Modric and Cruz, who I think have a great partnership and work really well together. Mine's very similar again. I've got Pirlo holding, I've got Modric ahead, and I've got to include Frank Lampard as well. Especially that season, highest goal scoring season of his career when he was with Ancelotti. So Pirlo, Lampard and Modric for me. Uh, and in the front three, we got a real mixture, of course, because, uh, you know, he, he did flip a little from from Diamond and Christmas Tree to, to more uh, standard 4-3-3. So we've got a mixture of, of wide men and attacking midfielders here. Uh, Rui Costa and Kaka, uh, AC Milan, Maluda and Anelka, uh, El Flaco Pastore and Lavezzi at PSG, Thomas Muller and Ian Robin at Bayern, and this season, Asensio and Vinicius, Michael, who are your two behind or to the side of a striker? You know what, if you allow me, I'm going to go for Diamond. I'm going to have one number 10 and two strikers because Ancelotti did, okay. had played that way a fair amount. Uh, Rui Costa is my favourite ever player, but I can't have him ahead of Kaka that season for Milan. Kaka was the best. <laughs> uh, and it's so tough to choose two strikers. It's so it's, it's, it's two of Shevchenko, Drogba, Ibrahimovic, Lewandowski and Benzema. I've, I mean, I really don't know. I'm going to go for... Benzema, because I think at the moment he's close to the best player in the world. And I'm just about going to go for Ibrahimovic, not necessarily because he was the best player, but because I think of how dominant, how crucial he was to PSG that title winning season. It really was all about him. So yeah, Ibrahimovic and Benzema for me. Mine's a bit lopsided. It's just mainly to fit in who I wanted. So I've gone for Iron Robin and Kaka behind Lewandowski. But it, yeah, Kaka would obviously be playing far more narrow. Robin would be hugging the touchline, coming inside, um, putting the balls in for, for Lewandowski. So there's a bit of method to it, I suppose, but it might be a little bit lopsided. I quite like that. I, I like that balance. And I love Iron Robin as well, so I do appreciate that. Enjoyed this exercise. I'm going to tweet out the list of players to choose from, from Ancelotti's five title wins. And please put together your own Ancelotti Composite 11 uh, on Twitter at Ali Maxwell underscore. It'd be great to see uh, how you guys approach this. And I've really enjoyed chatting through this remarkable, hugely successful career of Carlo Ancelotti, which has a lot more to discuss within it uh, than just celebrating five titles so thank you to Michael thank you to Mark uh, for chatting me through it uh, you can read all of their writing on the Athletic site so much more as well of course uh, if you head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics you can uh, get your annual subscription today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the first six hell of a deal head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics and subscribe today make sure you signed up to this podcast on whichever podcast platform you use you'll get every episode landing fresh as soon as it's released and join us again next week thanks for listening to the athletic football tactics podcast the athletic